Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. I'm Tanya J. Powers for Fox News Radio. Today I'm spending a few moments with Graham Allison. He's written a book that's really pretty timely, especially right now in our political climate, both domestically and internationally. It's called Destined for War, Can America and China Escape Thucydides' Trap? It may not be something you're familiar with now, but you will be before this interview is over. So the big idea is Thucydides' Trap. When a rising nation threatens to displace a ruling power, generally bad stuff happens. So alarm bells should sound, danger ahead. I've looked at the last uh, 500 years. There's 16 cases in which this happens, 12 of them in, in war, four in not war. So we should understand what's happening in the relationship between China and the U.S. as a rising power threatening to displace a ruling power and that this creates huge danger that external events like what's happening on the Korean Peninsula that would otherwise be manageable could trigger uh, actions and reactions of the two parties that would lead us to a war that neither party wanted. And you have quite the pedigree when it comes to national defense. And basically, simply put, you know what you're talking about. Uh, well, I've been working on these problems for a long time. I yes. had the good fortune to work for President Reagan and for President Clinton. So I've been in the middle of this for some time. You wrote something in your introduction that really intrigued me. If leaders in Beijing and Washington keep doing what they've been doing for the past decade, U.S. and China will almost certainly wind up at war. That's kind of buried in the introduction, but to me, that's a big headline. Well, it's a big point. I mean, basically, the book argues, if we look at the historical record, business as usual, and that's what we've been getting, both from Republican and Democratic administrations in the 21st century, business as usual will likely produce history as usual. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, only those who fail to study history are condemned to repeat it. So if, God forbid, a war occurs, for example, as a result of uh, Kim Jong-un testing missiles in North Korea, and we react and the Chinese react and one thing leads to the other, at the end of which we have tens of thousands of Americans killing each other, if that should happen, the leaders will not be able to blame some iron law of history. It'll be because of mistakes they made. So the, the objective of the book is not to predict uh, uh, the future, but to prevent it. You also, uh, you make several really, really good points in this. And, and, and I, I know I had to actually go through and figure out, how do you say it again, the trap? Well, it's a, it's a mouthful. And I, yeah. <laughs> since I've been promoting this book now, I think this is the 15th day since publication. I know some Americans have problems with multisyllabic, and certainly Thucydides is a mouthful. But everybody should have as part of his mental or her mental library this fellow Thucydides, so say it, Thucydides. Thucydides, I Good. like that. I, I got the, it, George. You got it perfectly. <laughs> Thucydides was the father of history. He's the first person that actually sat down and tried to write what actually happened in an event in order to establish the historical record so that people could read what happened and avoid the mistakes that their predecessors had made. Okay. Uh, simply put, 
Are we destined for war with China? Well, sadly, I'm a professor, so the answer is yes and no. Uh, So the answer is yes if we insist on just repeating business as usual, and no if we learn the lessons, because we're not required to repeat mistakes of those that have made, and there are a number of cases of success in which there are a lot of clues and lessons that we can apply today. You have worked, as you mentioned, with every uh, president, I guess every administration on national defense and and national security, that kind of thing, uh, since Reagan. Have you worked with the Trump administration? I have not worked directly with the Trump administration, but I have I'm uh, very friendly with H.R. McMaster, the National Security Advisor, and I've talked to him about this book and about the argument. And actually, the person who's in charge of China there, Pottinger, asked me in for a you know couple of hours of briefing with him and his colleagues. And so I think they're very much aware of this issue, and they're trying to cope with it. Did they know how to pronounce Thucydides or? No, Thucydides. Thucydides. I, I knew yeah, I was going to get it wrong doing, again. No, no, no. Thucydides. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and if you want you want a kind of a fun riff, <laughs> if you look at the uh, hearings for the confirmation of General Mattis, who's also a very big reader, they, they ask him about Thucydides' trap. And he says, wait a minute. I've been reading Thucydides for long before you guys. So uh, people who are in the business uh, know who Thucydides is and actually – Ordinary Americans ought to have this person as part of their mindset because, as I say, he established the discipline of history. And though lots of Americans don't want to remember history, uh, history reminds us you may not be interested in war, but war may become interested in you. Okay, let me ask you a question, devil's advocate kind of thing. President Trump has said, you know, he is not a big reader. This is not, you know, he's not a big study. Uh, he doesn't do a lot of studying of history and is not a big reader and that kind of thing. We've had presidents who were, who clearly, you know, spent a lot of time diving into this kind of stuff. Does it does it worry you that that he doesn't appear as concerned? I mean, obviously he has a, you know, like, as you mentioned, McMaster and other people there to, to do this for him kind of but does that concern you that he's the guy out there in the front and this doesn't appear to be something that he studies up on? I would say absolutely. I mean, part of the problem for a novice coming into a job like this, and especially one that hasn't been particularly interested in history, is that he may not be aware of the lessons of history. But fortunately, in McMaster and in Mattis at the Secretary of Defense, he's got people who do study history. But I would urge and hope history doesn't teach a single lesson. There's not a kind of a, everybody agrees this is the, that is the lesson. But failing to take account of what happened with our predecessors, both in the Cold War, what lessons we learned that we succeeded, and I think very troubling in the run-up to World War One, where big mistakes were made repeatedly, repeatedly. Leaders have led their countries into unnecessary wars. And my hope and objective in this book is that if we look and understand the risks that we face, real risks of war with China, we'll uh, uh, stimulate our imaginations, we'll apply the lessons of history, and we'll find a way to escape Thucydides' trap. You were given uh, the Defense Department's highest civilian award uh, for reshaping the relations with Russia and Ukraine and uh, Kazakhstan to reduce the former former Soviet nuclear arsenal. Uh, This is is a pretty big job. I mean, you you clearly know what you're talking about when it comes to kind of diffusing uh, tensions with with other countries. What would you like to to hopefully see happen between us and China or us and, and, you know, as you mentioned, North Korea? 
Well, uh, uh, thank you for remembering that. That was one of the greatest opportunities I've had in my life. And at the end of the story, we had uh, taken down 4,000 strategic nuclear warheads that had previously been uh, targeted at cities like Washington or New York or San Francisco, and recovered some 12,000 tactical nuclear weapons that had been lost elsewhere. And if those actions hadn't been taken in the Clinton administration, we would, God forbid, have found nuclear weapons loose here or there, maybe in the hands of terrorists, and then you could easily imagine a terrorist exploding a bomb in one of our cities. So many things that the American government has done over the years have made us safer. Dr. Allison, you strike me as somebody who's good at chess. Well, I'm interested in chess, and I think that we should be playing chess. And it's, uh, I think it was uh, uh, Bismarck uh, said, reminded us, don't play chess one move at a time. And, and that's exactly what this sounds like, because you, you, a lot of people may not make the connection and say, okay, well, how in the world do we end up with at war in, with China just because North Korea does something we think is, you know, obviously detrimental and stupid and deadly, potentially. But you've just explained the scenario. you got to take it all the way out to its to its end, so to speak, to understand the, the threat that, that really is there. Absolutely. And I think that if 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 we if we have difficulty imagining this, again, it's worth an idea in the book. Have a, a short, uh, you know, description. But in any case, of what happened in the first Korean War, and it's pretty unbelievable. I mean, North Korea attacked South Korea in 1950. This is just five years after World War II. Was just about to take over the whole peninsula. Uh, the U.S. came to the rescue just at the last minute. Douglas MacArthur, the great general from World War II, was in Japan at the time. So he came with a division of American troops, and we pushed the North Koreans right back up the peninsula very rapidly. We're, uh, M- MacArthur thought we were going to be home for Christmas, and the country was going to be unified under South Korea. When, as they approached the Chinese border, some people said, well, wait a minute, there's another country on the other side there. It's called China. And MacArthur said, well, the Chinese, I mean, they're 150th our size. So no, no Chinese would ever think of attacking Americans. And in any case, they were just barely getting over their own civil war. Nonetheless, he woke up one morning, and there were 300,000 Chinese, some of them not even having shoes, uh, soldiers, attacking the Americans. Then there came another half million, and lo and behold, they pushed us right back down the peninsula to the 38th parallel, where the country is divided today. So China attacked the U.S. in that war and actually beat us back to, a, you know, to the starting point. Uh, when it was a 50th their size, because they've made clear they're not going to have on their border a hostile state that's, uh, or even a friendly state that's militarily allied to the U.S. So no, they're not going to do that. So I'd say we should look at that and say, wait a minute, we, we are not interested in being on China's border. We're not interested in North Korea being able to attack us for sure. We and the Chinese should be able to sit down and be adults and find some way to deal with this problem because they don't have any great sympathy for Kim Jong-un. Indeed, I was at a recent meeting with people doing a post-mortem on the, on the Mary Lago summit between Xi and Trump, and they refer to Kim Jong-un as the brat. So they, they are completely tired of him. I think there's therefore space for the U.S. and China to work together on the problem. I also want to ask you while I while I have you and just and this is my my last question for you. The president has a habit of tweeting whatever he thinks, whatever's on his mind. It's it's on Twitter pretty much. I've actually had people who have dealt with national security before and and intelligence and things like this 
tell me if I was in another country and I was doing, you know, if I was getting intel on the U.S., the president's tweets would be the best window of exactly where his mind is, as opposed to, you know, kind of wondering about past presidents because they didn't do that. How dangerous is that? Are, are we legitimately worried that this could cause a problem in the foreign policy arena? Well, that's a very good question. And I think you can just think of the analogy with people whom you know. So uh, especially about things that are, that are complicated and that have many ramifications, and which, as you point out rightly, I mean, think of it as a chess game in which you can't move one, one move at a time. You have to think ahead. In general, it's terrifying the idea that a, a president or any uh, chief, if it was a company, you know, the, you know, that rather than going through deliberations and having a meeting with advisors and talking about the options and considering the consequences, that when the chief executive just gets an idea in his head, he tweets about it, and that now becomes a fact. Now, the, the, there doesn't, I mean, trying to discern from the tweets as well as from the statements the enduring threads as opposed to kind of the impulse of the moment is difficult but possible. So there are some enduring threads there. But I think as a way of doing business, it's certainly not something that we've seen in any other setting. And I think if I, you know, think about it in terms of just human beings, that uh, about things that are, are very important and that have huge consequences. The general counsel of history is that, uh, you know, you should take a little time to think about things. You should talk to some other people because your first impulse or instinct may not be quite right. Uh, and uh, that's why we have deliberative processes. So I, I do agree with you that I think the implication of this is that, that uh, I mean, this is his style. This is what, the, you know, has got him to this point. So I don't think he's likely to change. But I find it uh, uh, fascinating on the one hand, but also frightening. Yeah, I think a lot of people would agree with you that they don't want World War Three to start over a tweet. Uh, 140 characters is, you know, you can irritate a lot of folks with <laughs> with just that little amount of, amount of words. You can. You certainly can. So... Uh, uh, whether he will, uh, he's in occasions he's become a little more disciplined about this, and he hasn't, as far as I know, made any major decision, uh, you know, in this fashion. But he has certainly provided a, you know, clues to his instincts or inclinations, and I'm sure uh, that intelligence communities. Uh, and foreign services in other countries uh, study all this very carefully. Dr. Allison, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. This has gotten some some great insight into exactly kind of where we stand and, and you know, sort of the, the honest truth of the whole matter. I really appreciate your help. I enjoyed the conversation and look forward to more. I'm Tanya J. Powers. I've been spending a few moments with Graham Allison, the author of the book Destined for War, Can America and China Escape Thucydides' Trap? This is Fox News Radio. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.